Well, good evening, everyone. We're back in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to go and turn to 1 Kings 8. It's on the screen. It will be on the screen behind me. But as I always say, it's just helpful to bring along your own copy. Have your own Bible in front of you. Whether that's one that you actually open up or one you turn on. We're in 1 Kings chapter 8 tonight. So I'm going to read it. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses to us tonight. This is God's word. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Sion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethium, the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel had arrived. The priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and a tent of meeting and all the secret furniture in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to the place in the inner sanctuary of the temple the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark that is carrying its poles. These poles were so long that the ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Hebron, when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. In verse 10 and 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service before the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Let's pray one more time. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and move and fill this place. May your glory fill this place. May we not simply be here just to do church or just turn up or just tick a box, but we ask that you by your Holy Spirit will meet with us each in this place tonight in a significant way, in a powerful way, in a way that only you can. I come to you humbly, God, tonight and just pray for your help. We need you to be our teacher. We are here for you. We are here because we need you. So spirit of the living God, fall afresh. Interrupt this place tonight. May your presence be so real and so tangible in this place. So come, Holy Spirit. Come have your way. Come have your way in our lives, in our church, in our week, in the rest of our lives. Ask this in your name for your glory. And everyone said, Amen. 
So we're working our way through the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. The first 11 chapters of 1 Kings tell the story of the rise and the fall of King Solomon. If you're here at the evening time, you will know that already. But I'm just giving that as a little bit of a recap. It's the rise and fall of probably one of the most famous kings in all of history. King Solomon is known for his great wisdom. His wisdom was famous across the entire world. People came from near and far just to get his wisdom. He was probably one of the richest kings ever to have lived as well. It's almost impossible to figure out what his assets would have been, but some estimate that his yearly income was something like one billion pounds. The wisest and the richest of the kings. The rise and the fall are these first 11 chapters. 1 Kings 4 tells us that Solomon ruled over a fast kingdom. If you look at the next slide on this map, you'll get to see a little idea of what that might look like. So the red was the territory before David became king. The orange is what happened whenever David became king. And then the little yellow bit at the very top, including everything else in the red and the orange, that is what Solomon's empire looked like. So all the way from the Euphrates River, all the way down to the Red Sea was his kingdom. And never before has Israel taken over such territory. And the important bit in 1 Kings 4, 24 is that there was peace on all the borders. There was peace and rest throughout this province. But here we are in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, and all of that, in a sense, just fades into insignificance as we come to King Solomon's greatest moment. This is the moment where he builds the temple for the Lord. And tonight, you maybe didn't realize this, but tonight you get special VIP passes to go back in time 3,000 years to this grand opening. I hope you're ready. I ask you to have your passes ready to show at the entrance. Try and stick together as one big group because things are going to get busy in this time because it's crowded. Oh, everybody has turned out for this. The whole world, in a sense, is here. So let's try and stick together. Show your passes and let's go in. The first thing you will notice as we make our way in is the sheer size of this temple. On the next slide, you will see from a distance you're walking and you can already see that. So you've just shown your ticket. You just started to walk around and all of a sudden, the sheer scale and size of this temple is just awe-inspiring. Like you would go, wow, as soon as you stepped out and seen this. The footprint or the area of land that this temple sat on is the equivalent to two football fields. The next picture will show you a little bit closer up and give you some idea of the sheer scale and size of this temple. This is a project that took seven years to build. There's 180,000 of the most skilled people who are involved in the building of this skilled People who carefully sculpted every single piece of this temple together. Some estimate that there was 3,000 tons of gold used, 30,000 tons of silver used, 25,000 tons of copper was used, and the inside of this temple is completely covered in gold. Some say that of all the gold that you can mine in the world, four to five percent of that gold was in this one temple alone. You would say, wow, if you could see this. The outside of it is covered in precious 
stones and rubies and gems. Some estimate that it would cost anything from, get this, $150 million to $160 trillion in today's money. You would say, wow, as soon as you saw this. You'd be nudging the person beside you and saying, wow. But before we cut the ribbon and take a look inside in chapter 8 tonight, we need to remember the significance of this moment. This moment. This is a hugely significant moment for the people of Israel because this is a first of a kind build. Never before has Israel or God's people worshipped in a temple. It just never has happened up until this point. So that's 480 years where they didn't go to a permanent temple, they went to a portable tabernacle. Tabernacle is that picture that you're watching on the screen at the minute. That's where they went for 480 years. That's what they were used to. The first time we see this tabernacle or hear about it is all the way back in the book of Exodus. So after God's people are rescued under Moses' leadership and taken out from slavery or captivity under the harsh regime, the oppressive regime, of the superpower at that time, which was Egypt, they go towards the promised land. But before God takes them to the promised land, he stops them and he tells them, this is how you are to approach me. This is how you are to worship me. So in Exodus, we get chapters 25 to 31, which are these seven chapters which give us a super detailed, blow-by-blow account of what it will look like to worship God, or what this tabernacle will look like. None of this is left to the people's imagination. God tells them with the greatest of detail the measurements. He tells them with the greatest of detail what materials they are to use, what cloth they are to use, what colors they are to use, what fabric they are to use, what furniture they are to use. And all of that is to be carefully and skillfully crafted together and placed with great care inside this portable tabernacle. And that is what they've used for 480 years years. The word tabernacle means place of meeting or tent of meeting. It's a place where God dwells with his people. And the way that he would dwell with his people or presence himself with his people is through a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. If you were at the Bible Comes to Life exhibition last month, some of this you will be familiar with. But just to jog our memories, there was an Ark of a Covenant, probably something like the size of this table um, baptismal tank that is behind me covered in gold. And it is in that place that God met with his people. It was the most important piece of furniture. For 480 years of worship, they went to the tabernacle. And it was the priest and the priest alone that got to step into a place called the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was only through that priest, and it was only once a year that you got to have someone that would go and step into there. So in other words, for 480 years, the people of God needed a mediator or needed someone to step in as a means of communication with God. Without any of this, without any of this, you could not communicate with God. You could have no relationship with God. You could have no hope. That's what they did for 480 years. Now we come to the grand opening in 1 Kings chapter 8. The ribbon is cut and excitement would be electric on this day. You have to try to imagine what this must have been like. 
Literally millions of people, an entire nation of millions of people have turned up to see what this is going to be like and what is going to happen next. They have gathered. You can imagine people cheering, people dancing and shouting for joy in the streets. You can imagine kids on adult shoulders trying to get a glimpse of what is going on. You can imagine a bit of nudging and pushing and trying to get your way to the front. You could imagine some people brought their deck chairs that day and just lined the streets with their little flags waving with joy, you would be nudging the person beside you saying, wow. I think that's the word of the day back then. Wow, wow, look at that. Wow, look at this. Wow, did you hear that? It would be amazing if we could be there. Then there's silence. As a group of priests then begin to carry this ark of the covenant. And only the priests could carry this, or the Levites could carry this large wooden box that's covered in gold. And the only way they could carry it is through, or with the use of these poles. And they begin to carry it through the town and they make their way towards the temple. Wow. Can you appreciate how special this moment is? 2 Chronicles chapter 5 tells the same story as 1 Kings chapter 8. And it's always helpful to notice that. The way I know that is because it says it along the title of my Bible. It says there's 1 Kings 8, but also tells you to jump to 2, King, or 2 Chronicles chapter 5 to give you the same story. But there it gives you a little bit more detail, and it tells you about the priests there. It tells us that for one, we don't know how many priests were there that day, but one thing that we do know is there was at least 120 priests who were playing trumpets. Have you ever seen a priest play a trumpet? There was 120 of them on this day. There was other priests and they were singing. There was other priests and they were playing cymbals and they were playing harps. In other words, this is a large, loud worship celebration for 480 years on display. And this moment is all that tradition. Immaculate robed Priests, this perfectly ordered procession of priests and choir members making their way into this new church. A harmonious and rapturous rendition of praise and worship as 120 priests play, I don't know, a raise a hallelujah way back here. Of course they didn't pray, play a raise a hallelujah. They played something else. The modern hymn, do you want to know what the modern hymn was 3,000 years ago? Well, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, it is this. God is good. His love endures forever. And if there's anyone that is a witness to that or an example of that, it is Solomon. Solomon's reign is a testimony to God's goodness that endures forever and forever. Imagine, if you will, standing outside Put yourself in this chapter. You're watching the priests walk past. You're watching priests carrying this Ark of the Covenant past. You are listening to them singing. You are listening to them playing. You are watching all of this. You watch this large number of religious leaders make their way, filing in in a particular order into the temple that has just this day been opened. 
the outside of it covered in gold and rubies and precious stone and all of that glistening in the sunshine of that day. Wow. 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 Finally, the last priest enters into the temple. They've all gone in. You can no longer see what is going on. They set the Ark of the Covenant down. You can't see what they're doing around the covenant. They just carry on with their traditions. They just carry on with their religious duties. They just carry on with their ceremonies and things that a priest would normally do and had been doing for 480 years. But you don't really care what they're doing inside because outside, you are simply amazed. You are amazed at this massive church that we've been able to build. Outside, you are amazed at the show or the ceremony that you have been able to put on this particular day. What a day this must have been. And then, all of a sudden, you hear a commotion, and you look towards the temple, and out of the temple comes running some priests, and you wonder, What's going on there? And then some more priests come running. And then all of a sudden, this big cloud comes and completely fills or surrounds or engulfs that temple. And you now no longer can see what is going on. That's what 1 Kings 8.10 is. A cloud filled the temple of the Lord. A cloud engulfed everything. You can no longer see what is going on outside this temple. And that's a little strange, don't you think? It's a little strange that a cloud came at this particular moment. And it's, dare I say, a bit disappointing that a cloud came on this day. Because I was just about to take my 100th picture of me standing outside the temple. And all of a sudden, this big cloud just comes in and I can't see a single thing in front of me. It's the worst timing for the weather to change. It's very disappointing because we've been there in times where we've paid good money to go somewhere and see something which everyone has said you must go if you go on holidays there you must go to this place and get up as high as you possibly can look down it's unbelievable what you will see and we've all done that we've gone there and it hasn't quite been that way I remember going to Italy two years ago we went to a place um, on Lake Garda and there's a mountain there that's quite famous called Mount Baldo it's 200 meters up into the Italian Alps. And everyone told us, if you go to Italy and you get there, you must get on a cable car and you must get to the top of that. The queues are worth it. The money is worth it. Get there. So we went, we turned up early. We stood in queues. We waited and we waited and we waited. Then we got on what is a revolving cable car, which is amazing. And 15 minutes later, you're at the top of a mountain with a daughter who was two and a half at the time, saying, are we there yet? The whole entire way, a billion times. And yes, we're finally here. Do you want to see what we saw as soon as we stepped out? Here's what we saw as soon as we stepped out. Can you see that? <laughs> cloud, cloud, covered in cloud. Now, I wasn't saying, thinking at that time, this is a spectacular scene. I wasn't thinking any of that. I paid good money. I've waited a long time to get here. And this is what we see. You might be able to see off in the background some people walking. I'm not going to, for the sake of my testimony, tell you what I did say that day. We'll just move on quickly. That was not a good thing. So you've got a cloud in 1 Kings chapter 8. How's that a good thing? What's that all about? Well, whenever the Bible talks about clouds, it's really talking about the presence of God. 
what scholars or theologians might call the Shekinah glory or the actual presence of God. The actual presence of God turned up in the Old Testament in the form of this cloud, which I guess to you and I seems very strange. Why would God show up in a cloud? Like of all the things that he could pick to show up in, why did he show up in a cloud? And I guess as I've thought about it this week, maybe a reason is it's probably the safest way that you and I as mere mortals can stand before the majesty and the power and the splendor of the God of all creation. It's it's probably the safest way that we can stand before him. Because there's a really famous bit in the Old Testament where Moses in Exodus chapter 33 begs God, like he literally begs God for a few. He wants to see him. And he says in verse 18 of Exodus 33, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God, show me who you are. Or as the New Life version says, show me your shining greatness which I love. Show me your shining greatness, God. And you know how God answers that in verse 19? He says this, I will have my goodness, my glory, my majesty, my greatness, my holiness pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face for no man and no woman can see me and live. And what he does in this passage is hides Moses behind a rock. The greatness the majesty, the splendor, the power of God is too much for you and I as mere mortals. Do you know another time that a cloud shows up is earlier in Exodus in chapter 19. God meets with Moses on a mountain. It's a really famous one where the entire mountain shakes. The ground below everyone's feet rumbles and trembles. Tim Keller calls that a God-quake moment as God literally turns up, as heaven touches earth. Another time the cloud shows up is later in Exodus. This is now seven months after they have built the tabernacle. So it only took seven months to build that one, but as soon as it was built and it was ready, God showed up again. In verse 34 of Exodus 40, it says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the exact same thing happens here in 1 Kings chapter 8. The glory of God, the cloud comes and it's so thick and it's so heavy that the priests cannot do what they have been doing for 480 years. And I find that remarkable. I find that remarkable. For the first time in 480 years, the priests who were experts in what they did cannot do what they're experts in doing because God shows up in all his power and splendor and might and beauty and majesty. They cannot carry on with business as normal. They cannot perform their traditions or practices or duties. And I find that remarkable, not because God interrupted and church got canceled and everyone got to go home early that day because who doesn't love church getting canceled and having to go home early the odd time? I find it remarkable because the presence of God interrupts and invades chapter 8 of 1 Kings. And what is center stage? A cloud. 
a cloud is center stage in this passage. The presence of God is center stage in this passage. Now you have to think back to the type of temple that we're standing outside. This is the most luxurious temple that I'm sure you'll ever see. This is the most beautiful, spectacular, amazing, wow factor temple that you will ever see. Covered in gold, covered in silver, covered in copper, covered in bronze, covered in the most precious stones, covered in the most precious rubies and gems and diamonds and all of that fades as God shows up. All those millions of people that have gathered to stand, all those priests on center stage is this cloud, is the presence of God. You know what happens when the presence of God shows up? When the presence of God shows up, everything fades into insignificance. When the presence of God shows up, everything gets interrupted. When the presence of God shows up, everything is impacted. All traditions are impacted. All customs and practices and service plans and service timings get interrupted as the presence of God shows up. As the presence of God shows up, what actually happens is that we discover that there is no man-made structure, be it a tabernacle or be it the most luxurious temple that you could ever imagine. No man-made structure can hold or can contain the power of God. And I love that. Isn't that what Solomon's dedication prayer is? Later in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, he says this. Even the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. And here's my question for myself, but also for you tonight. How big is your God? How big is your God? How big is your God? Because we can be wowed by so many temporal things that are not God. Or we can be wowed by so many versions of what we think God or want God to be, but they are not God. We can be wowed by a moment. We can be wowed by a sacred space. We can be wowed by everything that is going on around us tonight. We can be wowed by a sermon or we can be wowed by a worship set. We can be wowed by a famous preacher. I wonder what would happen if the cloud turned up tonight. Like, can you imagine? Like, I have a sermon to preach tonight. Thank you very much. You might love this to be interrupted and get home early. But imagine the cloud turned up here tonight. What would we do with that? I think we'd just be wowed by it. I I do think we'd have our phones out and taking selfies with the cloud. Not to be irreverent, but I'm pretty sure that's what we'd do. We would light our Insta story feed up tonight with what is going on in Willowfield. We'd advertise that for next week, that the cloud comes to Willowfield. We would be wowed by the moment that we would actually miss what that moment is all about or who is in the midst of that moment. That is my fear. That is my fear of what we might do with that because we just get caught up in externals because we love externals. We do love externals. I'm not sure why you are here tonight or what you've come for, or what your expectation is of tonight. I'm not sure what you're distracted by, whether it's good things you're distracted by or whether it's not so good things that you're distracted by. But we can be so distracted by stuff, even good stuff, that we miss God. 
Or maybe the truth is we don't want God to turn up tonight. And maybe the reason we don't want God to turn up tonight is because, well, it's nice he did it in 1 Kings 8, and I'm glad he did it in 1 Kings 8, but I won't, don't want him to do it here because literally all I'm here for is I want to turn up, do church, and go home. Like the results of Strictly, they're currently on, aren't they? I've got to see what's going on there. Who got put out on a Sunday night? Who got put out? Or what have we got to do afterwards? We can be so fixated on other things and all I want to do is just turn up and do church and go home because this is nice and this is safe and I'm not outside my comfort zone. And God doesn't ask me to do something and I don't want God asking me to do something. I don't want God messing with my life. I don't want God messing with my church. I don't want God messing with my version of how we're supposed to do church. And it is so easy, so easy just to do church. And it's so easy just to do ministry and be more concerned about what we're building than who we are encountering. So focused on stuff and structures and buildings and appearances and reputations and egos. It's so easy just to turn up every week and just roll through the motions or it's so easy to be building your life just for yourself and gathering things for your life and gathering and accumulating stuff and structures and savings and buildings and toys and trinkets and possessions and other things that you hope other people will be impressed with you or other things that you hope that you will be impressed with yourself about. Mike Brickle says this, God releases more of his power and presence according to the measure of our hunger for him. God releases more of his power and presence according to the measure of our hunger for him. And maybe, maybe we're just not hungry for God. I'm not having a go at you tonight. I'm I'm saying that about myself. You know that's what I'm doing. I'm wrestling with how hungry I am for God, how, how much do I want to step into, do, do I want God to interrupt my life? Do I want God to wreck my life, to invade my life, to stop me in my tracks in my life? Am I hungry for that? Do I want that? What have you come for? Who have you come for? Like I'm sure in 1 Kings 8, there are loads of people that just turned up. Loads of people just turned up to see what was going on. There were people that really, really genuinely wanted to be there, but I'm sure there's just other people that wanted to turn up because a crowd attracts a crowd, doesn't it? And they're just there to see what is going on. Not as it. But God interrupted that moment, and maybe they weren't expecting it. God burst out of the temple that day and interrupted 480 years of tradition. And just like the priests in one king, sometimes maybe we're the ones that just need to get out of the way and let God be God. One Kings 8 is the presence of God breaking out. It is an unmistakable moment. And you know what? God must always be center stage. Regardless of what we do, regardless of where we go, regardless of who we are, God must be center stage. As I finish, you know, there's another time that God interrupts the world. There's another time that God came to dwell 
with his people. John Mina touched on this this morning, the first that he read, John 1, 14, it says this. The word, the word is also Jesus. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or as the Greek would translate, made his tabernacle among us. Do you know there's another time in the Old Testament where there was a, or in the New Testament where there's a cloud? Comes a little bit later from this. You read about it in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And Jesus is on a mountain this time with three of his disciples. It's really famous. It's the one where Jesus literally lights up the brightest, purest, most dazzling, bright white light ever. And there's a cloud that comes in that moment as well that covers the whole mountain. It's called the transfiguration. The transfiguration is important because it shows us that Jesus is God. But it shows us something else. It shows us in that moment that Jesus, in a sense, pulls back the feel and allows those three disciples to see who he really is, to see his true power and his true nature in that moment. This is a moment where Jesus allows his shining greatness to burst out of himself. A moment where the entire cosmos trembled and shook. This is a moment where the galaxies and the stars and the planets and all their beauty became dull because Jesus is displaying his majesty. All of creation is blinded by God in this moment. Can you imagine that? No longer is God way up there in the sky detached from us. No longer is he in a cloud, but he is literally standing in front of these three disciples as God in the form of Jesus is God wrapped in flesh. The transfiguration teaches us that even a body cannot contain God. The galaxy, the entire universe cannot contain God. He has come to set foot on this earth, to save it, to redeem it, and to renew it. And he did that in the form of this body. But we rejected that body. And we beat the life out of that body. And we took that body and we kneeled it to a cross. And after that body had given up its life, we took that body and we laid that body in the grave. But once again, sin and darkness and the devil and even death itself could not stop and could not contain the presence of God as he bursts out into the world full of life again. And it's in that power and in that victory that we step this week. Because here's the thing, you don't go to a temple anymore, you don't go to a tabernacle anymore. There's not an Ark of a Covenant we go to and there's not a cloud that we go and visit every now and again either. God lives or dwells inside of us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And it is that power that we step into. It is that power that is within each of us. And I guess as I thought about this, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if the Holy Spirit would just leak out from our bodies? That the power and the glory of God, the presence of God would just leak out from us. So wherever you find yourself this week, that the power of God would just flow from you by the power of his Holy Spirit that lives and dwells and is inside you. 
What impact would that make in your work this week? To know that, to walk around like that. And I don't mean walk around with a big head on you because that's never what the Bible talks about. Because again, who's center stage? It's not you, sorry. It's not you, it is God. God must be and has to be center stage. But imagine that through you and the places you go this week that God's presence could flow and touch lives. Just imagine that. Imagine that in your school. Imagine that in your university. Imagine that in your work. Imagine that as you stand in a line waiting for a job or looking for a job. Imagine that as you step into hospital this week. Imagine that this week as you go and visit someone in hospital this week. Imagine that as you go home and try to do life with your family that's broken and shattered and you don't know what's going on. Imagine the presence of God just leaked out from you and touched our church and touched our streets, and touched our city, and touched our land. Just imagine that God interrupted. Just imagine that God interrupted your sphere of influence, and where you go this week. Richard Foster, and with this I close, has this beautiful quote that says this. In our day, heaven and earth are in tiptoe, waiting for the emerging of a spirit-led, spirit-intoxicated, spirit-empowered people. All of creation watches expectantly for the springing up of a a disciplined, freely gathered, martyr people who know in this life the life and power of the kingdom of God. It has happened before. It can happen again. Such a people will not emerge until there is among us a deeper, more profound experience of an Emmanuel of the Spirit, God, with us. As we pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Holy Spirit, will you move? God, will you break into our lives? God, will you interrupt our lives? Right across this place tonight, I pray that you by your Spirit will interrupt lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will impress in each one of us a deeper desire for more of you, a hunger for more of you. May we never be satisfied where we find ourselves, but may we always be pressing in, leaning in, chasing after, desiring, hungering more and more and more of your presence. And I ask that you will release that across this place tonight. I ask that you will do that for your glory and for your honor in this place. Ask that you will do that so that your glory will be evident in our sphere of influence, in our public square. Wherever we find ourselves, I pray, God, that in this room, you will raise up a generation of believers sold out completely for you. May your spirit move in power. So spirit, come and interrupt our worship now. In your name, in your name alone we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Bless you. Why don't we stand together as we respond?